This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This podcast may contain strong language and themes listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Remember the black and blue dress that wasn't white and gold? Well, the debate turned five years old this week. People are still arguing over it. For the last time, it's black and blue. The shop owners even said it themselves. Speaking of the past, turns out Love is Blind, everyone's favorite new Netflix show, was filmed in 2018. Meaning that if some of those couples really did get married, they had to keep it a secret for two years. I don't know how people like Jessica and Janina kept it quiet for so long. This week, a star was born. Charlotte Aubrey, a pub singer from Essex, has become an overnight internet sensation after being stopped in the tube by YouTube prankster Kevin Freshwater. She was asked to finish the lyrics to Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper's Shallow, and it was phenomenal. Charlotte has gained over half a million followers on Instagram. She has performed live on The Ellen Show and has fan pages being set up in Brazil. Be right back. Just going to hang around Bank Station to sing my version of High School Musical's Breaking Free. Unlike Charlotte, I didn't go viral on the weekend. And I am so glad. The BBC Big Questions team invited me to be a guest on the panel in Newcastle. And all I could think about was saying something stupid and becoming an accidental meme on Twitter. Luckily, it all went well and I got to explore the beautiful city afterwards. But I can feel myself getting old, you guys. Instead of going out in the tune the night before, I stopped by Greg's for a cheese bake and a vegan sausage roll and went to bed at eight. If this is what your 20s are meant to be like, I am terrified for what comes next. This is Your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. Massive thanks to everyone who has subscribed, rated and reviewed our show so far. If you haven't, why not do it now? In today's episode, we will be discussing the threat of coronavirus in the UK, the Heathrow expansion case and hashtag Yorkshire Teagate. I'm joined by author and journalist Rebecca Reed and journalist and producer Toby Bakari. Three more people have tested positive in the UK for coronavirus, with Northern Ireland confirming its first case tonight. So, All the coronavirus in the UK... How bad is the problem? Schools are closing as people in the UK are testing positive for COVID-19, aka coronavirus. At the time of recording this episode, the total number of coronavirus cases has risen to 19 in the UK, with one new case in Northern Ireland, one in Wales and two more in England. Canary Wharf offices have been in lockdown after a worker suffered coronavirus symptoms this week, and many have been asked to self-isolate after travelling to countries where the virus has been prevalent. For example, we know Channel 4 News presenter Jon Snow is currently self-isolating at home. Fears over the spread of coronavirus have also prompted a record plunge in the US stock market, as analysts warned the outbreak could wreak economic havoc on a scale not seen since the 2008 financial crisis. Toby, how bad is the situation in regards to COVID-19 right now? It depends where you are. So if you are in China, still, that's an incredibly serious situation. If you are in Italy, 
it's a uh, northern Italy. It's a pretty serious situation. If you are in Iran, it's a pretty serious situation. In the UK, um, that we're getting cases, but we're still at the stage where when we get a case, we can trace who that people was in contact with. And once we lose that, once we lose the ability to be able to trace where people have come from, then it's a new phase and it's just people passing it on to one another. And then that's when it becomes a kind of, you know, bigger deal. You know, it's escalating. I'm trying to kind of calm people down <laughs> and like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad, but it's a situation that's escalating. Let's talk about the virus itself. You know, 80% of people who get this virus are only going to have mild symptoms. There's a high likelihood you'll be fine. 5% get quite seriously ill. And from what we know, the fatality rate's about 2%. So that's a lot higher than influenza. But it's not a death sentence. There's not treatment, but it's not a huge bad case scenario that, you know, you might think, oh, the media's panicking and what have you. We're just letting people know what the facts are at the moment. And the facts are is it's spreading and we need to start taking precautions. Rebecca, how are you feeling about coronavirus? I mean, I was less worried about it until I started listening. I've kind of deliberately avoided it where possible. Um, to be honest, I'm an anxious person, so I like to worry about things that don't really matter, like what I said last night or if I've left my iron on, despite the fact that I haven't ironed since 2005. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm a bit worried about it, but I'm trying to remind myself that, like a lot of these illnesses, if you're not very elderly or very young, it sounds like you're less at risk. That's true, that's true. I mean, you. if you're... You are more likely to be really unwell with this if you are very old or if you have a pre-existing condition. The main thing I'd say, if there's one thing I'd say that you you can do if like, oh, you're at home, like, how do I, you know, do my bit? I would say just wash your hands more regularly and more thoroughly than you used to at the moment. That's the main one key thing like you can do. I mean, people you've seen people on the tube and on trains wearing masks. And I don't think that's really, we're not at that stage in this country. If you have COVID-19, coronavirus, wearing a mask might help stop you from passing it on to other people. But we're not at that stage yet. Like I was saying, it's still very much small numbers of people in the UK have it. So when you see people on the tube wearing a mask, it's kind of like, uh, I think maybe that's a bit of a overreaction at the moment. I think we I learned something very interesting about being British with regards to the mask, which is that so apparently it's quite traditional in some Asian countries, particularly in China, to wear a mask if you're ill to protect other people. Whereas we were all like, put it on, protect myself, keep myself safe, keep myself safe. It was not at all the mentality of like, it's a courtesy to others to make sure that you don't spread germs. Yeah, that, that's um, a good way of putting it. Is that yeah. It's just about um, a courtesy to others. I reckon in a couple of weeks, more people will be wearing masks. and But that's not the thing that's going to the thing that's going to stop is washing hands. And if you've been to one of these areas, if you've just come back from Iran like Jon Snow has, then, yeah, self-isolate. I flew back from New York yesterday and there were a lot of masks on the plane. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy wearing one of those builder's ones that has a sort of like plastic circle in it. And he took it off partway through the flight and I sneezed just once. One tiny, delicate lady like sneeze halfway through and he yanked it onto his face. I was like, all right, calm down, mate. I'm not even touching you. It's the fear and panic, isn't it? It's like with these things, there's the virus and then there's what people think of the virus. What people Are people going to start changing their habits? They might have to. You know, football matches are going to maybe be played behind closed doors. We'll see what happens. What? Some of them have been Secret postponed. football? Well, I mean, there's talks. I mean, in Italy, they cancelled, you know, big football matches like Inter Milan and Juventus. Big teams were playing. Wow. They had to cancel the game to try and limit the spread of the virus. Got, that's what you've got to do now because in Italy, it's kind of getting to the stage where you can't trace everyone. So you then have to put these big things in place. Um, we're not 
at that stage in, in the UK, but that's what might have to happen. We'll see how it develops, but that's what's going to cause fear. But it's about, in terms of me and, and, and how we're reporting it, we're trying to get that balance right between, look, this is the situation and yes, it's getting worse, but also don't overreact, don't panic about it. How, like, how has it been reporting it on the ground? The ground is like the whole world. So there's no, you, mm-hmm. you know, we, we went like to Geneva for those a conference, but it's like the situation's happening in China, the situation's happening in Italy, it's happening in Iran, like it's everywhere. And the mad thing about this one is just how quickly it's changing. Like I sent a tweet out being like, Nigeria has just confirmed its first case of COVID-19. Uh, I believe that's the second country in Africa. And then I kind of went to look it up again. It's like, oh no, Algeria has just confirmed the first case. Right, okay, so update that. Like it's constantly moving. Like nine o'clock you get in and there's a situation overnight in Asia and then the situation in Europe. And then by lunchtime, it's like the situation in America. And it's like, that is mad. Like I'm used to stories moving quickly. I work in news and that's cool, but... This one really moved. You know, if you think that when you last had your Christmas dinner, this thing didn't even exist. Mm. And like now it's like global. What are the symptoms of coronavirus? And what should one do if they experience these symptoms? The main symptom is fever and cough. There's still a lot we don't know. So firstly, there's a long list of countries now. But if you've recently come back from South Korea, China, Iran, Northern Italy, then call NHS England, call 111. And, and if you're experiencing these symptoms, say that. And then they will take, kind of take it from there. You know, as a precaution, you can kind of isolate yourself from people. So that just means kind of being in a separate house and using different bathroom and what have you. Um, and then try not to panic and just speak to a doctor and then eventually, you know, get tested. But the, the main thing is not to panic. And if you're just an ordinary person at home, what can I do? Wash your hands more regularly. Is it morally bad to use self-isolation to get out of plans you don't want to go to? Uh, I'd say I'd say so, yeah. But it's funny you say that. One of my friends cancelled on plans and said that she's feeling quite ill. And she did say, I don't think it's coronavirus, but I'm going to be self-isolating this weekend. <laughs> I obviously am making lots of jokes about it, but then there is a kind of serious side to that, which is that I think um, people who appear to be Asian like or people who look like they're Chinese or Japanese even if they are actually from West Ham people are apparently being treated differently and people don't want to sit next to you on the tube and sort of acting very uh, and I was in a nail place the other day uh, where most of the staff were Vietnamese which is not even somewhere where it seems to be a particular problem and there were people in there kind of giving it looks and being a bit and it does seem to be bringing out some really fun new racism it's, it's the stigma isn't it that's the that's the really bad thing like I've heard of instances of Chinese children being bullied in school I've also I also heard instances of Italian children being bullied in school now. And wow. I think it's just that thing of that's where you don't want to create panic. You don't want everyone just kind of be like, oh, my God, it's here. It's happening. And then people just running around like, what do you do? I seem to be hearing that children are actually not getting it. Is yeah, I mean, from the data that's kind of out there and now there is more and more people, it seems that children have some sort of immunity to it. So they're, they're getting it at a less rate. It might be for any number of reasons. I think the most likely kind of explanation is just children have kind of mild coronavirus. So just for anyone who doesn't know, it's just the general name for different types of common colds and flu. So influenza is a type of coronavirus. It's just like they didn't get around to naming it in time, really. So just coronavirus is stuck. Children have mild coronaviruses and they have some sort of immunity to this particularly strong version of it because they have 
little coughs and colds with them all the time. That's so like um, sci-fi. I'm gonna guys. I'm gonna go and bash out a really quick book about kids can't get it, all the adults die. It's like Lord of the Flies on it's, a global yeah, scale. Yeah, yeah. There's a dystopian kind of. There's a real That's kind the of what I wanted. Yeah. Dystopian, <laughs> not sci-fi. Yeah. You know, if you if you look too far into it, like this could really escalate. Like I say, and I guess if you're looking back and is it like is it like swine flu? I mean. I, I remember there being like panic and I think Tamiflu, there was like a drug that was mm. like stocked up on. Um, but then some people are starting to say, you know, it's actually more like the 1918 like Spanish flu. That was the bad one. That's that what was... killed Edward in Twilight. Oh, really? Fun fact. I did not know that. I mean, he was a fictional vampire, so nothing killed him. But uh, yeah, fans of Twilight will remember that he was dying of the Spanish flu when he was made into a vampire. Amazing. I'm glad I know that now. I just I, I just not need to say that it's not, whilst people are kind of making that link, it's, we're not there yet. A, we're not there yet. And B, 1918 and 2020, mm. very different. And we've heard the term super spreader yes. in these discussions. What is that? Like, in all journalism, you know, you always want to be like fair and balanced. But with health, the, the risk is always that you're just kind of stigmatising people or you're creating panic. And those are two things that you really don't want to do. And with the super spreader thing, and there's always a danger with that because it's like, oh, it's this one person's fault that I have it. And it's like, it doesn't really work like that. It doesn't really, doesn't, it, the term doesn't have any meaning, I think, except for to help people understand that, oh, this can spread. One guy went on holiday. He then went somewhere else and passed it on to a few people and then went somewhere else and passed it on to a few people. And this, you know, person is patient one or whatever. So the super spreader is just a way of saying, oh, this is the person that we know has it and we know this is where he went. That's how people in their heads kind of understand it. But it's not like, it doesn't, it's not, it's not. It's not really fair, is it? To blame it on one person. Because they didn't make the virus. And And also they put pictures of him. And also, I think he's a scoutmaster, isn't he? And the way they used the word scoutmaster, it was like they were trying to suggest other things. They were trying to build this portrait of him as an odd man, I think. Which I don't think he was. I think he was just a perfectly perfectly normal, nice man. But then I called my pub quiz team the super spreaders the other week. So, How did that go down? I mean, people thought it was quite funny. I felt bad, but also I got attention and laughter. So that's all I ever really want from life. So Amazing. But we talk about how... We don't really know much about this virus and the fact that it can be quite dangerous. Can the NHS actually handle this kind of virus? It can barely cope with sort of the seasonal flu. The government says it can, but several independent senior doctors are saying ICUs will not cope in pandemic outbreak. What do you think? I personally think that the NHS are pretty superhuman. My experience is I've I've never had to wait for anything. I've never been disappointed. I've always had the most incredible experience. And my experiences have pretty much universally been that doctors basically give up their whole life, soul and sanity to work in a system that doesn't support them, but manage to create an amazing situation through that. Uh, But then also I live in London, so I have access to a a lot more hospitals and very, very high quality hospitals. So I imagine if you live rurally and you don't have as much access, like when my parents live, it's 45 minutes to the nearest hospital. So if you get into an accident or you need an ambulance, that is not a good, 45 minutes is a long way. It's not great. Um, so yeah, in short, I feel like we probably will cope because the NHS is so amazing, but it'll be on the backs of people who shouldn't have to be working 36 hours in a row and should be being paid considerably better for the amount of work that they do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've been covering health for not that long, maybe like eight or nine months. And 
the thing I've really learned is like the NHS is massive and people do an amazing job and it really is like some of the best treatment you could ever imagine. But it's always under strain and like every winter it's like really, really difficult and you see on the news and the figures come out and there's like record waiting times and people waiting on trolleys and all of that. And if you add coronavirus into that mix, can it cope? I don't know. While most MPs and business backed a third runway, environment campaigners had never given up hope they could stop it. Today's Now let's talk about the Heathrow expansion case. Plans for a third runway at Heathrow Airport have been ruled illegal by the Court of Appeal because ministers didn't take into account the government's climate change commitments. Heathrow is already the UK's biggest single source of carbon emissions. Expansion would project an increase of 300,000 flights a year and the number of passengers by 50 million, producing 4 million extra tonnes of CO2 emissions. Studies show that air pollution is estimated to contribute to 9,000 early deaths in London each year, and over half a million people in the area surrounding Heathrow suffer noise levels above WHO standards. The ruling is a major blow to the project at a time when public concern about the climate emergency is rising fast, and the government has set a target in law of net zero emissions by 2050. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, could use the ruling to abandon the project, or the government could draw up a new policy document to approve the runway. However, the ruling is the first major one to be based on the Paris Climate Agreement and may have an impact around the globe by inspiring challenges against other high-carbon projects. Not surprisingly, Heathrow bosses want to keep the plans for redevelopment alive and truly believe they can. A spokesman said they were confident an appeal to the Supreme Court will be successful and added they would work with the government in overcoming obstacles to the plans. Rebecca, do you think plans for an extension are a good idea? I don't think we do need another runway. I think basically what it is, is that there's another airport called Schiphol, which is in Amsterdam, and it's now bigger and fancier, and Heathrow don't like that. My absolute favourite thing about the runway debate, and uh, it's not something that I follow every day, uh, but my favourite thing about it is that the, um, so Gatwick also wants another one. And the people who live near Gatwick campaign to support the runway at Heathrow, and people who live near Heathrow campaign to support the new one at Gatwick. It's like the ultimate passive-aggressive activism, and I'm really here for it. Love that. Toby, what about you? What are your thoughts? The whole reason that the government aren't going to appeal is because... They've signed up to the Paris Accords and they're going to try and deliver, you know, carbon neutral by 2050. So they're turning around and saying, okay, well, if that's what that means, then we can't support this. And if that's going to be the start of a huge change in how we live our lives and what we kind of sign up for, then this could be like a really watershed. It sounds so dry in it, third runway at Heathrow, but like the, the government are now saying we are going to put climate above economics in a sense and that's very very different i mean are they gonna stick with it i don't know you know but yeah i think cynically i wonder if some of it is so boris johnson's always been very vocally anti um and also uh we know that his constituency which is i believe uxbridge and i want to say south rice lip it's so. one of the rice lips there are so many rice lips <laughs> um and yeah he um he's he's the mp for that area which is very close to heathrow and kind of under flight paths so were he the MP for somewhere else, I wonder whether the same sort of decision would have been taken. But that's me being very cynical. And in a week of uh, coronavirus, we probably do with some good news. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's choose to believe it's because we're all going green and everything's going to get better. Like, the, the Tories have always been like, they've always been really anti-airport expansions because so many of them are in seats, you know. Like, And it's the same with kind of HS2 as well. There's yeah. a lot of opposition to that and it's because it goes through... There's lots of reasons, but part of it is it goes through some of their constituencies. And 
Yeah, and it goes through some very pretty areas where people's country houses are as well. Um, And there's nothing worse than losing your country house. But interestingly enough, the expansion was proposed by a Labour government. People keep having this idea that, you know, the Tories are super anti-environmentalist. But isn't that quite fascinating? Yeah, with the Tory party, look, they're, they're in power now and they've got a chance to kind of really implement their policies. And they, they do have some people that are really do seem to care about the environment. This could be a, a, a bit of a watershed moment in terms of changing what the priorities are. I mean, can you then skate, you know, can other countries start to follow? And is it a case that people are going to start to put climate before endless growth? That's going to that's be a big question. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, it's a tricky one, I kind of go round and round on this, but I think there is an element of privilege in being able to care about the long term. Obviously, I'm very pro the environment. I would like the world to not end in a ball of fire. But I can also see that, particularly in areas of the UK where jobs are very scarce and money is really scarce, if something is bad for the environment but would provide employment, therefore make your life easier and your family's life easier for the next 20 years, rather than being good for the environment for the next 200 years, I can really see why somebody wants the more capitalist side of things so that they can you know, not, not worry about money so much. And I, so it's, it, sometimes it feels like, I can care about the environment because I'm very, very privileged. But I guess it's maybe also more than just about the environment because there's also an impact on wider public health, right? Um, And we heard about that in the stats that about 9,000 people in London die from Mm. air pollution. Um, And also with the loss of habitat in the area, biodiversity and the high levels of air pollution. I mean, 700 extra planes is a lot. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, in London, you know, there was that really um, important case a while ago where a, a young girl died from, she had quite severe asthma and she lived like, right by a really, really busy road in South London. And her parents, were, her mother was able to kind of make the case in court that, you know, the environmental policies in London contributed to um, her her death um, and, and exacerbated her, her asthma. So there's a huge, you know, living underneath a flight path with noise pollution, living next to a busy road where it's so, where there's so much, pollution and fumes and what have you it's, it's, it's not good for you it's not ideal so if it's, it's now it's about okay how seriously do people take it and is it now going to be the case that we have to kind of scrap all these old ways of doing things like I, I, I would love for, for there to be a situation where you know when I'm commuting in it's just not it's not as polluted exactly and also you know stats show that people who suffer the most from climate change are the poorest mm. so I guess in terms of what you were talking about, Rebecca, in protecting the environment, you're also protecting some of those communities as well. It's really complicated because you're absolutely right. The The lower your household income is, almost universally, the higher pollution level you will be living with. So, you know, middle class children whose parents are in sort of professional, well-paid careers will live perhaps in London or a city, but they'll live in a greener area and they'll maybe have garden space. It'll be, And also, you know, you're able to do things like... I bought a new build flat recently and it's got an air filtration system, which would have been, I would I probably wouldn't have paid for it, but that would have been very expensive. So it does become a very, very round and round thing. But I think it's difficult to get people, anyone, to understand that um, long-term gain is important. And I think we get, we can't see the air. I grew up in London. I don't really even notice the air. Uh, I, I realise that it's bad for me, but I don't, I'm not aware of it. It's and it's very hard to get people to be like, okay, yeah, this does mean that you're going to take home less each month or there will be fewer jobs or you won't be able to get a cheaper flight. But I promise it's better for your lungs Mm. because you can't see your lungs. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, activists are celebrating the news. Do you think this proves that pressure groups can impact environmental change? 
I don't think it's as good a news as that sounds. I think pressure groups can implement change when the change is what the people in charge secretly kind of want anyway, uh, which I know is really cynical. I'm trying to be upbeat, but I really, I do think in this case, um, had they been trying, because if you think about things like plastic water bottles or there's just so very, very many things that we try and campaign for on a very regular basis that don't happen. Um, it just feels like there's a reason this is the one that did. Actually, I kind of feel like there is change happening. I mean, look, I know that from, you know, on the programme that I work for, like we are covering, we're covering a climate rally in Bristol. You know, Greta Thunberg is speaking, and she has changed the game in terms of like climate activism is now front page, front and center. Um, it seems to be making progress uh, in a way that I don't think it kind of was like five years ago. Extinction Rebellion are kind of they're getting a lot of criticism one way or another, and uh, you know it's up to people what they think about that. But they are getting uh, a message out and in a way that I don't think was happening before. When it comes to the environment, everyone's got self-interest. And if you run a company or whatever, you you still, you, you need people to kind of be healthy to buy your products. And uh, I think there's a bit of kind of companies maybe starting to realise, look, you know, the new a new generation of people will want us to actually be better f- environmentally than previous generations. There's a really cool graph. I can't, you know, if you're listening to a podcast, it's not that helpful, but like, <laughs> there's a really cool graph about how the, the flights internally in China just like massively reduced um, just as a way of um, stopping the spread of coronavirus but yeah it just make you think they, redu- the pollution has been reduced is that just the number saying? of flights oh the number so, yeah yeah, you yeah. Know, flying from Wuhan to Shanghai sure. and that kind of thing and it's just gone massively down as a way of stopping the spread and it just makes you think is is are we we're, for the virus we're going to have to maybe do more e-meetings and that kind of stuff and um, work how from hard home. It, work from home yeah. yeah 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 and can we persuade people to do that can we persuade people to do that for the climate is it necessary I do also very I don't know I just love trains so much and I really very deeply believe that if you made rail travel considerably more affordable in this country people wouldn't fly to you can fly to Birmingham mm-hmm. like you can fly to Cornwall that is you ridiculous. shouldn't have to no exactly just give me a subsidised train ticket I just want to pay the same as I would in Germany that's all I want not all I want it's one of the many things I want Hashtag Yorkshire Teagate. What was that about? Chancellor Rishi Sunak posted a picture of him appearing to make a huge tea round for his treasury staff. Next to him was a big bag of Yorkshire tea. The Twitter image led to calls by some people for boycotts of the brand. The company asked people to be kind and to remember that there's a human on the other end of the social media account. But the drama continued when Twitter user named Sue kept sending criticism to the company. Finally, a social media manager responsible for Yorkshire Tea said, Sue, you're shouting at tea. Please do look after yourself and try to be kind to others. We're going to meet you now. Days later, Jacob Rees-Mogg pledged his allegiance to Walker's Crisps in a social media post. He tweeted, I am a Walker's Crisps man or Pringles when I'm feeling extravagant. There was also an unopened cream egg on top of the pack of Pringles. Firstly, what did you make of the Yorkshire tea drama? Hashtag Yorkshire Tea Gate. I kind of just was like, it's mad how it is getting worse and worse and worse on social media, you know, like across the whole spectrum, left, right. More and more people are shouting at each other. I know more and more people that are coming off Twitter and they just are just done with it. You know, I still find it useful just about, but like I get why people are like, this isn't for me because someone posts a picture of tea and all of a sudden Yorkshire Tea have to come out and say why they are not endorsing xyz policies so it's kind of just mad how that's where it's at now because i kind of do you remember when george osborne had that picture of him eating byron burger 
Uh, he was about to deliver the speech. And, you know, I remember that being like a lot of people were laughing at him because like, oh, look, that's kind of cringeworthy that you're trying to, you know, look cool eating a burger and writing a speech. But I don't remember Byron having to be like, oh, no, 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 we don't agree with George Osborne and what he thinks. So it just seems like now you've really got to defend something that you haven't even done. You know, because Yorkshire Tea didn't ask Rishi Sunak to take that picture, I don't think. I'm so tired of it all. And I looked at that and I just thought, you're all so stupid. Go outside and do something else. Like, get a job, do some volunteering. And I feel like a very old Tory now. But And I'm I'm not that old and I'm not a Tory. But I just, I have, I can't, I have no patience. It's just tea. Exactly. Um, but you know what I found interesting? Jeremy Corbyn had a picture of him with Yorkshire Tea in 2017. And I don't remember that kind of response. Mm. Yeah, but that's because this magic grandpa, everyone loves, everyone loved him on the internet. Twitter is a very, at least I think, quite a lefty platform. And also, I don't know, he was innocuous, but it seems like there's a correspondence between not getting elected and people being happy for you to use their product. 2017 was also like two, three years ago. And on Twitter, that is maybe just a lifetime. And it's just just escalated now to the point where it's just a massive shouting match and you can't do or say anything without coming in for some sort of criticism. I mean, look, with me and Twitter, I just kind of keep it to the facts, you know? Like, uh, the last interesting, semi-interesting tweet I sent was like, oh, fan mail's 20 years old, you know, that TLC album or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, it's the first album I remember buying, and I put something out about that. But more and more, I'm just kind of like disengaging from the kind of shouting that goes on. Because once you get sucked in, you can't really come out. And, you know, Rishi Sunak's trying to be cool and good luck to him. And, like, in that regard... But um, you, you're opening, you're you're going to get into, someone's going to have an issue, you know? Tetley's are going to have an issue, Twining's going to have an issue. And with Jacob Rees-Mogg posing next to Walker's Crisps and Pringles a few days later, do you think this is a way for politicians to come across as sort of normal and in touch with their voters? Are the political party's PR team trying to get in on the joke? I think there's definitely an element of that. And I love cream eggs. And it's going to be really hard for me because I'm going to have to try and eat them without thinking of him. But yes, I think there is definitely this element of, um, you look at me with your real people. And, you know, whenever politicians go on Desert Island Dis or something like that, you can tell that some aide sat up till three o'clock in the morning being like, won't read some world music, something that the young people will like, uh, a Stormzy. People like the Stormzy. Let's have Stormzy. Um, and, and I think that it's, very, it's it's exactly that. It's this kind of art, this artifice of, re- of relatability from somebody who could afford to not work and pass on enough money that their children never probably had to work um yeah i think everyone does it everyone is always trying to project their best version of themselves or something that people will engage with on social media when it comes to politicians i actually don't know who does it well i actually don't know who does it in a way that you know the people that do it best you don't even know that they're kind of doing it exactly whereas sometimes i think that's not really the case with politicians and i can't really think of a politician where you just... Mm. Like, I'm trying to think who's the most likeable person. I mean, Rory Stewart makes a really good go of it. Uh, but he's oh, also become, know, but he's even, become a figure of fun. Yeah, I mean, even in the last campaign, he did, you know, come sleep with me. Yeah, I think it, it's become silly that he's he's gone out the other side. But then who is a genuinely likeable person on the internet? Like, who do you really like on the internet? Not politicians. But anyone. Like, is there any celebrity who you genuinely really like on the internet? That's a hard question. Celebrity, no. Like, there's like interesting people that I've never mm. met but I kind of like oh I'd love to meet them on Twitter or whatever um, but like massive celebrity no? also I think with celebrities like they have to have a certain brand and keep to that brand yeah. so they stop being fun 
I used to think that the Waterstones Twitter was like the most charming, beloved thing. And to be fair, it is very charming and very beloved, but it is also a business. And you and that's exactly earlier. the conversation, isn't it? Because we keep thinking that these brands on Twitter are friends. Yeah. But they're actually continuously trying to sell us a product. Every day there's something, right, on yeah. Twitter. There's a new trend. But what did you think about Sue herself? Like, did you think she deserved the pylon she got? So I've definitely been in a situation where I have started an argument with a few celebrities. I have one in mind who is particularly guilty of it. And there is this thing where... Um, you they retweet the thing that you've said, which is usually, at least in my case, a relatively nuanced criticism, and they retweet it to their hordes of millions of fans who then are absolutely furious with you and pile in on you, and you get days and days worth of mentions. So I think there's a difference between replying to somebody and retweeting them. If you reply to somebody, it will be bo- signal boosted, yes. But it will be contained. But it's contained and it's people who are kind of connected in. Um, and there's a difference between passive aggressively tweeting about somebody without asking them, which I don't like, but it's still different. I think when you actually retweet it and put it out to the world. So I be- did Yorkshire Tea reply to her or retweet her? I think they actually replied to her. So yeah. if they replied to her, I'm going to go ahead and say I think that was fine. If but it can still get picked up. That's a bit, you, these things, once... They generate a certain amount of pickup, just really. Yeah, but it's it's crueler to retweet it. We spoke earlier about the actual people behind those social media accounts. It must be really hard for them to constantly have all this negative information aimed at them. I wrote an article ages ago where I talked to some people who run the social media for railway companies and supermarkets and the places that get the most aggro all the time. Um, and by all accounts, it's a relative, it's a very new job. It's only been a so you can only work mm. in social media for probably 10 years tops, maybe 15. Um, and I think the fact that these pe- these jobs are so new means that they're not properly looked after because there should be support for people who have to be on the front line having abusive stuff sent to them all day every day and I think it's we all forget sometimes that that person is real and that they're having to sit there and go through it and as somebody I think you, you probably have similar we both have to we all, in fact, we all have to have social media for work like being off social media is a privilege um, and therefore we know what it's like when it's hard people will say just switch it off just turn it off but when you can't you can't and when you work in it I think that's even worse if that's your actual job so I think brands should be taking care of their social media people I, I know loads of people who you know the 6.30 is delayed I'm just going to send a, another tweet to oh South God, East, I think I used to be one of them me too that that does happen and, and, and again it's like there's a dynamic isn't it it's like well yes okay fine South East another big kind of company here but we we Someone else has to read it. Someone else has to kind of answer the question that you've asked and they don't have an answer. You know, social media is that managers don't actually have the answers to the questions that people are posing. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's like people want answers like, well, I don't have an answer because I don't run the company. I'm not in charge of this thing, but I try and communicate with you as best as I can. Yeah. And I remember being on a train to Edinburgh and they had oversold it and they cancelled several. And I was standing sort of on the aisle uh, by the loo and I was tweeting. I was furious because I booked a ticket. really expensive because trains are expensive I don't know if I mentioned that um, and I sort of said several times I was tweeting being like this is ridiculous what are you going to do about it la 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 declassify first class and in the end my husband who is 11 years older than me and therefore not a child of the internet was like what about wild idea let's walk to first class sit there and then when the train conductor comes say would you consider declassifying because this train is overcrowded and that's what we did and it worked and I talked to a real person in real life not the internet and because uh, I, uh, I don't uh, yeah the amount of times I get 
um, people who are you know of a different generation to me saying, "Why don't you just call them?" Like, oh, okay, <laughs> wait, speak to another human <laughs> in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that initiative I've just like. Oh. Yeah, and it's in journalism. It's a big deal. Lots of people will be like, "Wait, sorry, I have to interview somebody on the phone." But I'll just, I can just email questions, and you're not supposed to do that. You are supposed to talk. I do think it is a fair thing to be able to criticize brands for trying to humanize themselves they do do that a lot Mm. but i think when it comes to actually someone being on the other end of abuse we do need to talk about that more Mm. and we need to talk about the repercussions on their mental health as well because it's not their fault that they're in that position yeah and it's very easy to say hi i realize this isn't your fault but my asos order is three days late and i paid for premium delivery could you please let me know where it is and refund my delivery the other thing is there's a tone to it isn't it exactly and then thank you so much for your time Mm. and also there is Asking yourself, am I asking for a specific thing or am I just ranting? Mm. Am I saying, when will the train be here? Or am I saying, the train's late and it's mm. your fault? Because they can't make the train arrive. Yeah. They don't, they're not the train driver. And that's the, but sometimes, I, you know, I have, I, I don't do that. I don't say, where's my train, because I just kind of feel like it's just, I, just, I don't know, I just don't think it's, it's for dicky. me. It's dicky. Yeah, it's a bit like, oh, is it necessary? You don't want to kind of get into a, sl- a slanging match how useful is it is it maybe sometimes it's just to make yourself feel better I think it is I think it's to vent the rage absolutely it's to make so- make sure that somebody can hear you and I, I think um, I read a research thing that a lot of trolls are people who are housebound for various different reasons and that I think can feed into the same thing it's wanting to feel heard because you feel frustration in a given situation what you get in response though is often a platitude mm. like well if you speak to someone say, then we'll see what they can do bestly or whatever the case may be and you kind of just feel like oh that's not real action the brand fakery thing or like the we have a personality thing I blame it on innocent smoothies because I remember <laughs> it was in like 2007 they started doing that thing where on the bottom of the bottle it would say it's yummier if you turn it the other way up and then on the inside of the cap it would be like a tiny hat for a mouse um, or like it had silly little jokes written all over it and I was captivated by that I was like, God, they're so funny and real. Wow, what a breath of fresh air. And I realise now that it's probably like a group of old white men in suits sitting in a room being like, how do we get those millennial dum-dums to like us? (laughs) It worked. It did. I loved them. (laughs) Thank you so much both for coming on today. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, Well, I probably will have weakened and come back to Twitter. Uh, But I'm Rebecca C.N. Reid on Twitter and Instagram. And also, I write lots of books. So look me up on Amazon or a local bookshop if you're a really good person. Um, Mine, it's just my name on Twitter. So it's Toby and then Bakari, B-A-K-A-R-E. In other news this week, chlorinated chicken is once again the centre of conversation in UK-EU talks. Harvey Weinstein was found guilty and landmark Me Too moment. Greta Thunberg and Malala Yousafzai met at Oxford University. The government has pledged an extra £236 million to tackle rough sleeping, alongside an urgent review into the issue by former homelessness czar. And finally, universities are going to stop giving conditional and unconditional offers before students receive their A-level results. This has been Your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag Your Broccoli Weekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, please tell your friends. 
Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Cast, and all your favourite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.